If you turn with me to the passage on which today's teaching is based, it comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And this is God's word. Good morning, and uh, welcome to Metro. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, great to be up here. Um, if you're new, you're visiting um, thank you for coming. I know maybe, maybe for some of you it's been a while since you've stepped into a church, and um, we know it's not easy, but thank you for doing that. Um, for the past few weeks, we've been going through a series on marriage um, to prepare us and uh, remind us of what a biblical view of marriage is, um, and especially in the world that we live in today. Uh, so we hope that whether you're single or you're um, married, this will be a great opportunity for you to be reminded and encouraged on uh, what to look forward to. Um, today's topic is going to be oneness, marriage as oneness. And I'm going to actually be diving deep into the Genesis passage printed, uh, the call to worship on page two of your bulletin. And, um, and I have three points for us this morning. The reason for oneness, the way of oneness, and the power for oneness. The reason, the way, and power for oneness. So the reason for oneness, I think for most people, all of your life revolves around a spouse, getting a spouse. People usually now live up to 90, sometimes even 100. My grandfather is 97 years old. Um, and um, a third of your life goes to searching for this one person, one spouse. Uh, and two-thirds of your life has to do with living, learning to live with this spouse. And it starts all the way in grade school. I remember in third grade, I had a girlfriend, and we were very serious. <laughs> we, we pretended that we had a kid. And looking back, it's kind of weird, but that's what happened. In grade school, you remember during Valentine's Day, you'd have little uh, bags uh, taped to the side of your desk and you'd bring in goodies and candy and little cards and you'd go around and drop cards and, and candy into your classmates' desks <clears throat> and at the end of the day you dump it out and you're, <clears throat> and you're hoping that this one girl or guy that you had a crush on wrote you a cute letter like, I believe you stole something of mine, my heart. <laughs> or it takes, a million, it takes millions of people to complete the world 
but it only takes you to complete mine. You got to save that one. That one's pretty good. Or my favorite, after the Super Bowl, there was a picture of Tom Brady reaching out for the catch and the ball slipping right through his hands, and he says, I'll drop everything for you, baby. (laughs) It starts in elementary school, and it goes on to high school and beyond. Everything you do pretty much involves finding a special someone. The way you dress, the things you say, the way you act, even the college that you attend. I had some friends in, in high school who looked up which colleges had the most attractive girls, and they went to that school just because of that. How much money you make, the job that you want to get or have now, even the church that you attend. In this world, you got songs, movies, TV shows that make billions and billions and billion dollars on love. Every song has something to do with love. Every movie has to have some kind of plot and romance. There's there's TV shows like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. There's even one like where you swap wives, which which is ridiculous, right? But they make so much money out of it because everyone has a longing in their hearts for this special someone. One of the highest rated movies, Toy Story 2, still it has a Rotten Tomato rating of 100%. It's the one where Andy, he grows up and, and they're holding a garage sale and they have all the toys because um, they're trying to get rid of some of the toys that he, didn't, he no longer played with. And this is the one where the toy collector, that big guy, I forget his name, but he stole, he stole Woody from this garage sale. He took it back home. And this is, the, this is the one doll that he's been looking for forever to complete his collection. He would paint him. He would polish him. Um, dust him off every single day, but at the end, he'd put him behind a glass box so no one can touch him, but that he'd be safe. And the reason why this, this movie is so good is because there was a big, profound dilemma that everyone can resonate with. Woody could either stay with someone that he loved, Andy, knowing that he'll eventually be discarded when he gets older, or He can flee to a world where he will be pampered forever, but without the love that he was built for behind the glass box. Would you choose to live life without love? That's deep. You never thought of that, did you? That's deep. So the question is, why? Why? And the reason is, is because God intended for human beings to, be, to love and be loved very intimately, to be part of community. We were made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And if you listen to that, if you listen to that, this is the first time where God uses the language of us, an hour when he's referring to himself. And it's because from the beginning of time, even before time existed, he dwelled in community, in intricate, intimate community within the Trinity. Whether you're married or not, community is an integral part of the way that we live. And marriage is the culmination of that community. This keeps going in and out, but marriage is the culmination of that community. It's the most intimate relationship that you can have on earth. So what is marriage? 
Marriage is a public, legal, exclusive commitment to your spouse. It's public because you need a witness in most states. It's legal because it's binding. It's exclusive because it's only between one man and one woman. And it's a commitment because it's forever, till death do us part. And, the marriage, and marriage finds its beginning in Genesis 2.18 where God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I'm going to exposit this very quickly. It is not good for man to be alone. Not good. If you remember from the beginning of creation, God said everything was good. After making the moon, the stars, animals, plants, everything, after every single time he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. This is the first time where God said something was not good. So the only thing wrong in the entire world, in this perfect world that God created, was Adam's lack of of companionship. Think about that. It is extremely important companionship. Going on, it is not good for man to be alone. Alone. But the funny thing is Adam wasn't alone. He had the animals around him, but he also had God himself walking with him, communing with him, tending to him, having a relationship with him, but for some reason God said it was not good to be alone. And this shows us the incredible importance of human relationships in our lives. Adam needed human relationships even in paradise. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And this word helper is in no way a demeaning term. Many people nowadays think that scripture and the Bible demean women, but that is absolutely not the case. This word helper, David actually uses this word to describe God himself as a helper. Psalm 121 verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hill and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God himself is described to be a helper, that same word that is used here. One commentator says it like this, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That same one also says, if a man is the head, the woman is the crown. I'd rather be the crown than the head, but I'm not. I'm the head. So. <laughs> it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a, will make a helper fit for him. This word fit literally means corresponding to or opposite of, meaning what man lacked, she supplied. And what she supplied, he lacked. Men and women complement each other. And the culmination of this fitness is this idea of one flesh, completeness. If you think about it, two of the same puzzle pieces don't do anything for each other. You need one puzzle piece to be tailor-made for the other, to fit perfectly, to complement one another. So when you look back, you see a beautiful picture. Everyone has the desire to feel complete. If you ever watch the movie The Dark Knight, Batman, in the greatest, the greatest acting moment of the movie, the Joker, Heath Ledger, 
um, was caught and he's in the interrogation room and uh, Batman says this. I was debating whether to do it in the Batman voice, but <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Batman said, then why do you want to kill me? And Joker responds, I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? No, 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 no. You complete me. That's what the Joker said to the Batman. Even in the most twisted way, everyone is looking for completion. This feeling of completion, whole, wholeness, it's paramount to human beings. And Adam broke out in a love song when God provided women for him to be his perfect puzzle piece. You can imagine Adam going around naming the animals, and then he saw Eve. He's going around, he's naming animals, alligator, platypus, giraffe. Then he probably gets a little bored and runs out of names, cat, duck, mouse. And he couldn't find this perfect person. Well, so, so God knocked him out. He was taking a nap, and when he woke up, it's like a movie. His eyes slowly unblurring, and he sees this figure in front of him this beautiful figure, and he sees Eve. And you can imagine his first words were probably something like, hubba hubba, or something like that. I don't know what it would be. It's just like, wow. What did he do? He sang a love song. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this is man's only words recorded before sin entered into the world. A love song. So why was Adam so overjoyed? It's because it's the act of two becoming so intricately woven, forming one. It has Trinitarian undertones. It's not the same thing, three and one, but two becoming one. What God has enjoyed for all of eternity, he has come to offer to us, even in just a small little glimpse, in joining man and woman. Joy, completion, oneness. However, the passes directly following this can be probably called the first test in marriage. Genesis 3.1, let me read this for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the question is, where does it start breaking down? And if you look carefully, it starts breaking down when God's intended order of the world was flipped on its head. Let me explain. Man was to rule over creatures, and creatures or animals were called to obey man. After all, God called Adam to rule over creation. And man was intended to lovingly lead his wife for her good. 
So man leading woman, leading creation. Yet sin entered into the world through a serpent. And in the narrative of the fall, the serpent ruled over the woman and she obeyed. And the wife led her husband, complete opposite. And the root of it is selfishness. On the part of the woman, desiring to be like God, to be just as wise as God, wanting to be the head. And on the place of the man, blaming his wife. If you remember in the story, after Adam and Eve took a bite of that apple, God came wondering what happened. Of course, he knew what happened, but he said, what happened? And what did Adam say? He started blaming God. This woman that you provided for me, she's the one who made me sin. He was blaming his wife. He refused to take responsibility as head. He was no longer leading and protecting, but blaming. It's a reversal of God's initial design for man and woman. And sin continues to be the root of broken relationships, whether you're married or not. If you feel, nowadays, if you feel that a relationship is no longer pleasing or fulfilling to you, what do you do? You cut them out. I can find somebody else who's just as good as you, who can fulfill me. That's in relationships and, sadly, in marriage. So the way of oneness. That leads us to our second point, the way of oneness. However, achieving oneness, completion, it requires the ultimate act of selflessness. Again, whether you're married or not. The idea of friendship, relationships, and marriage in the world is completely self-centered. It's around me. What can I get? What's in it for me? However, what does the Bible say about marriage? One commentator said it like this. Your marriage is designed to look like Christ's crucifixion, where selfless love and selfless submission collide for the sake of another. The result is that both husband and wife can say, God has given me a lover whose care sings to me the story of our salvation, of God having reconciled selfish sinners through his selfless son. Marriage is supposed to reflect Christ and what Christ has done for his church. So just as Christ laid down his life, sacrificed everything for the church, man is called to do the same in sacrificing his life, everything for the sake of his wife. And in the same way, the church submits to, the, to Christ out of love. In the same way, woman is called to submit to man. So what does God call us to do in marriage? Ephesians 5.25, our passage, or also Genesis 2.24, where it comes from, says, For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Man is to leave his parents and unite and become one, cleaving with his wife when the two will become one flesh. What we call that is the idea of leaving and cleaving. Two actions, leaving and cleaving. They need to be together. So leaving. Back in the olden days, still today, maybe not in the Western civilization, relationship between parents and children were absolutely paramount. That was the primary relationship we had in our lives. There was a profound obligation children had to their parents. So after marriage, what happens? 
that no longer is your primary relationship. It is the spouse who is the primary relationship. And that's outlined again in the story of Adam and Eve. God didn't place Adam's dad or Adam's mom in the garden with Adam. It was Adam and Eve. Marriage now becomes the center of everything. Happy wife, happy life. In a sense, that's true. If you put your career in front of your spouse, you get neither. Everything can be great at work. You can be making tons of money. You can be the head honcho. Yet when you come home and your marriage is broken, everything just falls apart. On the contrary, at home, marriage is awesome. Marriage is great. Yet when you go out, work can be difficult, oftentimes shattering, but you continue to have the support and love from your spouse to continue on. I think this one's especially relevant for times today, even children before your spouse. When you put your children, the love of your children before your spouse, you oftentimes get the love of neither. Children cannot give you the love that you need, that you were built for like your spouse can. And if you expect them to, it's going to drive you crazy all your life. My heart is broken still at the thought of Owen and Theo telling me the H word, that they hate me. I'm a... It's going to be sad. It's going to break my heart. But eventually, that's going to happen. Children cannot fulfill the void in our hearts, the love that we need and that we were built for like our spouse can. Tim Keller provides great insight here. When we expect the dynamic, for, for some of us, we have a hard time leaving, this aspect of leaving. And these are some of the ways. When you expect the dynamics between the father and your mother to superimpose into your relationship now with your spouse. One example is me and Agnes, we grew up in very different households. Her household likes to plan everything like months in advance. My household, 15 minutes before, they're like knocking at your door like, hey, what's up? Can we come in? She hates that. In her family, her dad took care of all the finances. In my family, my mom took care of all the finances. So we had a very difficult time of contention in the beginning of our marriage. Also, maybe even hatred for your parents can cause you to be controlled in your relationship with your spouse. You hate your parents. You hate some of the things that your parents has, has done for you. One example might be, I hear all the time at work, I'm never going to go to church. My parents forced me to go to church. I'm never going to go to church. I'm not going to let, let, let my kids go to church. In that way, their hatred for their parents is forcing them to live a certain way although it might be good for their kids. In-laws can often be the most difficult part of marriage. But this is where we have to remember that that relationship with your spouse is above all. We're bae before all else. I think that's what it means. Leaving home requires more than just physical leaving. There's physical, there's relational. Relationally, emotionally, you can be dependent on your parents rather than your spouse, and you're more concerned with what your parents want than what your spouse wants. Things can be very, very difficult. Financially, 
spiritually. You're still dependent on the faith of your parents. You haven't yet internalized it for yourself. Of course, there are uh, exceptions for all of these, but the point I want to get across is that marriage is a fresh start. You become a whole new person. So for many of the married couples here, my question for you is, have you left home yet? Or maybe if you're not married, are you prepared to leave home? Or some of our in-laws or our parents might be the ones unable to let go of us. So we might, need a difficult, we might need to have a difficult conversation with our overbearing parents out of respect and love, of course. That's leaving. So cleaving. Leaving and now cleaving. You have to do both. Cleaving, you, you become a new unit. You become a whole new person together financially, emotionally, spiritually. When, when something's wrong in your life, you go to your spouse to have emotional healing and you're, you're, you're with your spouse each and every day, there has to be spiritual sharpening in your life. This one unit thing is a very real thing. For example, when wives are pregnant, husbands begin to feel the effects of pregnancy as well. It's actually a real thing. It's called Kuvaid syndrome, sympathy pregnancy. One woman said, my husband is experiencing constipation, gas, bloating, irritability, and nausea right along with me. One dad says, during my wife's pregnancy, I gained 15 pounds and had severe swelling in my hands. The funny thing is, when my wife was pregnant, I'd always say, yeah, we're pregnant. She was the one bearing child, and I said, we're pregnant. During her pregnancy, Agnes would often ask me what I was craving, and most nights I actually fell asleep earlier than she did. It's a real thing. Union, you become a new person. Uniting in debt or lack of debt. Bad habits. Sometimes my bad habits become my wife's bad habits and vice versa. Some say couples actually begin to look alike after marriage. There's a profound union, oneness. But oneness requires deep, deep commitment. One commentator says, We never more reflect the covenant-keeping God than when we pledge ourselves in covenant to one another. Worldly love doesn't require sacrifice because love is a feeling. And after marriage, you quickly come to realize how quickly you fall out of like or love out of someone because you see all the sides. Good. Well, you saw all the good while you're dating and while you're engaged, but now you see all the bad. Love is an action before it is a feeling. It takes an act of commitment and extreme hard work. And one of the hardest things is the aspect of cleaving completely, being vulnerable with someone. And we see that in the garden. Adam and Eve, they were completely naked in the garden, but not just physically, but in every single way. They were completely vulnerable with one another. But you notice that after the fall, after sin happened, the first thing that they noticed was their nakedness. And they immediately covered up. So much of marriage has to do with trying to cover up, not being transparent with your spouse, not having an open dialogue of communication. And that, that's for all relationships. You have to be honest with people. You have to be transparent. Relationships require vulnerability. How else will you speak truth into someone else's life? 
For those married and struggling to see the light, one thing that we often forget is that marriage isn't just, it isn't our work of uniting two people. If it is, it's going to fall apart every time. But it is God who unites us. Jesus said, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And the funny thing how love works is that the more you sacrifice for someone, the more you begin to love and cherish them more. The more time you invest in someone, the more affection grows. And again, that's not just for marriage, that's for all relationships. Love gives regardless of how love feels. But as you truly love, feelings begin to ignite again. Husband and wife, you become one flesh, one body. And oneness also includes taking care of your body. If you find an infection, you just, do you just wait for it to get better? No, you treat it. If something is broken, you mend it. If you feel a body part weak, you begin to lift weights and you exercise to strengthen it. And in that same way, marriage when you see an infection, when you see difficulty, when you see weakness, you don't just expect it to get better. You work on it. You apply the gospel to it. You need to lift weights. You need to mend it. You need to treat it. Marriage is the most intimately face-to-face, in-your-face relationship out there. It's when two selfish insecure, inward-facing sinners become one flesh, and it's not easy. But the most fruitful relationships are those where there is conflict and struggle. Just as fire refines gold, it doesn't just take one time you put it into the fire, but you put it back into the fire again and again and again. But the longer it's exposed to fire, the more pure and more precious the gold becomes. In true community, in true community, there is deep, deep joy and security, whether you're married or not. And that brings us to my last point, the power for oneness. So the question is, how does it all come together? How in the world do two selfish, completely selfish people come to be selfless in their love. And it's by experiencing the ultimate selfless act of love in Christ individually, which results in the joy of gazing at the beauty of Christ together, side by side. The Son of God literally left the Father to come down and cleave to His bride, the church. On the cross, my On the cross, when Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was literally torn away from his Father, not just physically, but emotionally, financially, relationally. His Father, whom he had intimate relationship with from the beginning of time, he left it all to become one, cleaved with his bride, the church, you and me. So emotionally, financially, relationally, All that was his, he now shares it with us, his bride. Brothers and sisters, do you see the beauty of Christ and his reckless love for his people? And the amazing thing is this was planned out 
since before the world ever existed. This Adam in the garden was just the shadow of this Christ who was to come. Just as Adam slept a deep sleep in order that out of his side, Eve, his bride, was formed, Christ slept the deep sleep of death upon the cross in order that out of his side came blood and water. Blood to purchase his church and water to purify it to himself. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. So whether you're married or single, may we look to Christ and the ultimate marriage between Christ the bridegroom and the church the bride who was made beautiful not because of anything that we have done but purely through the faithful unconditional enduring selfless love of her groom Jesus Christ may we gaze at the beauty of our bridegroom King Jesus let's pray